0: Please now turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 7 through 12 together as we continue to consider our Father's deep love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If you're visiting, please feel free to use the pew Bible provided. You'll find the text on page one thousand twenty three. One thousand twenty three. First John, Chapter Four, verses seven through twelve. Please read along silently as I read aloud. The musical group, The Righteous Brothers, would cut a single track about the diminishment of love that would resonate with Americans for generations to come. Their song, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. It would top the charts by the next year. That's not surprising. It's a catchy song. But what is surprising is that this song would eventually march on to be the most played song on the radio of the 20th century. I know, it surprised me too. In fact, as recent as a few years ago, Broadcast Music Incorporated, that's the group that collects fees on behalf of singers and groups and songwriters each time their music is played in public, said, this song still led the charts, at nearly 15 million plays in the United States alone. Clearly, the theme has struck a chord with many. Anyone with just a little bit of life experience knows what it's like to lose that love and feeling. From children to great-grandparents, love, or love so-called, can lose its luster. Whether it be the love that we first had for our job, or our pets, or even family members, or a car, sometimes love seems, seems to go away. Such is the problem, though, with our popular notion of love. It comes with an expiration date. Emotional intensity and feelings of goodwill can only last so long... And that is the problem with the world's view of love. But what about biblical love? Does it ever expire, sour, go stale? Technically, it doesn't. Love, biblical love, is rooted in the will, enabled by the Spirit. It pushes through the feelings. Exercising a self-sacrificial commitment for the spiritual good of another. Remember what Paul said? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Practically, that's technically. Practically, however, while it's not supposed to end, sometimes the feeling is gone. Is it not? Sometimes, showing biblical love is like a downhill bike ride. Those are great. Sometimes, it's like an uphill trek in the Swiss Alps in the winter. A little more difficult. We could speak of the challenges of showing biblical love in marriage. We could speak of the challenges of showing biblical love in parenting. We could speak of the challenges in showing biblical love to other family members In-laws, it's Thanksgiving weekend. (laughs) The struggle's real. Yet John's greatest concern for us is our relationship with others in the family of God. Sometimes we even lose that loving feeling in the church. I love the old couplet, To dwell above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, now that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all know what it's like to feel the excitement of a new place, new people, a church family. It's a honeymoon stage, right? But have you ever noticed that love wane? Maybe it was gradually. Maybe it was instantaneously. The church members you couldn't help but love all of a sudden became hard to love. The Apostle John seemed to be aware of this tendency as well. And amazingly, this text even hints that believers under the pastoral care of the Apostle of Love, that was John's title, even they would lose that feeling. The the letter, you know, assured readers who believe in Jesus that they will behave like Jesus in what way? In Christian love. We've seen this now, having read this text, for the third time. It was in chapter 2, it was in chapter 3, now it's in chapter 4, and we're not done. (laughs) So John is continuing this theme, he's like... True Christians will love one another, and that's how he's presented it. He's presented it as a fact, as an imperative, excuse me, as an indicative. This is who you really are, but he does something different this third time around. He doesn't just say that Christians will obey the command to love one another. He actually turns it more into a command and says Christians must obey the command to love one another. So it isn't just that it should happen. But it's that it must happen. We must obey this. And he even here incentivizes the command by giving us reasons why we should love one another. Why? Just in case we're ever tempted to ask why, just in case it ever gets hard to obey the command to love, he wants us to remember some reasons why. He gives us some motives to love. And so for those times we may struggle, the text lists three motives for loving one another. The first is found in verses 7 and 8. We should keep loving one another because it conveys our Father's nature. We should keep loving one another because it conveys our Father's nature. Look at the text again. Beloved, let us love one another for... Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you see how John's motivating them to obey the command of love by affirming the Father's loving nature in them? He basically says, obey because this is who your Father has made you. John, contextually, he's moving on from belief, right? He expanded on that in verses 1 through 6. We talked about it last week. Here he's turning to the behavior of love. And before he ever gets to this explanation of why we should love, notice just simply how he exemplifies and exhorts this command. The exemplification is here in his own example. He says he calls them beloved or loved ones. He's not angry with them. He's not ticked off. He even reminds them in his own speech that he loves them and that they too are loved by God. Beloved, let us love one another. This is the first time he actually directly commands them to love. He's kind of presented it as a fact, and here it becomes something that must be obeyed. He's taking them off autopilot. He's letting them know that even though this should typically happen, sometimes you will actually have to volitionally choose to love other Christians. But the focus here is not on John's example or his exhortation, but his explanation. The question is, why should we obey the command to love one another? What could move us to obedience when Christian love is an uphill battle? Well, John basically answers... You need to remember where we came from. Even better, you need to remember who we came from. He focuses them in on who God is. Do you see that there at the beginning and the end of verses 7 and 8? For love is from God because God is love. He wants them to remember who God is. He is the source and the substance of love. He is the source of all love. It all originates from his being. Just as sunbeams originate from the sun, so also love emanates and flows from God because it is his very nature. It is not just something he does. It is who he is. One said it this way, thus all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. So if he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is an expression of his nature, which is love. I have a systematic theology book in my library entitled, the theology is entitled, God is Love. It's very well written. The 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 author, Gerald Bray, arranges the entire table of contents. Now, again, a systematic theology is a book that tries to take everything in the Bible about God and to organize it into categories. In the contents, he organizes everything around love. And he's not just doing so in some superficial, cheesy way. He makes a great case. This is who God is. And as delightful as this doctrine is for most of us, we need to concede that the love of God is a difficult doctrine for some. Maybe you've experienced some form of unimaginable personal pain. Maybe you know an unbeliever who objects to the idea that God could be so loving in light of all the things that seem so wrong in this world. Thus We need to remember a couple things to help people grasp this truth. First, is that God defines our concept of love. God defines our concept of love. Our concept of love does not define God. We don't define the terms. You may have in your mind, or your friend may have in their mind, their own idea of how love should work and what it should look like. But they're not the standard of what love is. God is. God is indeed love. But the Bible also reveals that God is, and there's only a few of these statements in the New Testament, God is light, God is spirit, and God is a consuming fire. These things can work in harmony with one another. So thus, as God exercises love, he also exercises wrath and justice. Sometimes these have to belong to love. I know the question that the person suffering may ask, or maybe your unsaved friend, how can God be love if he exercises wrath over sin and he pursues justice? This is a hard question. The only analogical answer that I could give you is that it's similar to the way a parent who loves a child and still hates everything or everyone that is threatening to them, everything or everyone that is destructive to them. Love is at the same time, and and embroils with it hate. If, If you take it away from the personal realm, you can think of the oncologist who is loving a patient even as they literally destroy their body with radiation. God's love is a perfect love. And we may not understand the pain that it brings or that it introduces into this world, but he is the one that defines the standard of love. I would say practically, if you are struggling with this or you know someone who's struggling with this, I would point you to the resource by D.A. Carson titled, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. We don't have time for it today, but it is a wonderful explanation of all those hard questions that we seem to have about God's love. But don't miss the point of the text. Even as I defend God's love, I, I don't want us to miss the thrust of what's going on here. John is describing that this is who God is. At, at his very essence, at his very being, God is love. He is the source of love. He is the substance of love. And this affects who, all of those who were born of him. Think about it. Fathers have some type of impact on the substance of their children. Who they are derives from the nature of their father. So John here is not just going to describe who he is, who God is, but he's also going to talk about who we are in relationship to him. When you look at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, you see this. This is why John adds, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Who are we? We are the sons and daughters of love. Who is God? He is the source and substance of love. The two relate to one another. Literally, the text says, everyone, all, anyone who is characterized by love has been birthed by God and is in an intimate relationship with him. Birthed by God and is in intimate relationship with him. That first one, has been born of God. Past tense with present results. It is speaking of the new birth. This is we share in God's nature. Our spiritual substance, our soul, that part of us that we cannot see, it actually changed into something different. The old part died, a new one was given us by God. That's what it means to be born again. We received a new soul from God. This is something that happened in the past, but it affects us currently. I assure you that my father, physical father, Rodney Harris, has had some bearing on the man that I am today. So also, the heavenly father, by nature of who he is, has some bearing on the man or the woman you may be today. It isn't just this spiritual relationship but it's also this social relationship it says and knows god he loves god and knows god it's a present tense verb it's ongoing relationship we saw this a few weeks ago when john uses the word know he's not talking about intellectual knowledge he's talking about relational knowledge so again i'm going to use the analogy of parents because that's the analogy that paul is using i have a stepmother her name is susie harris we are not related by blood, but we are related. <laughs> there is a social relationship. That woman from the time I was six years old to right now has had some impact on who I am. There is fellowship, there is relationship, even though there may not be a blood connection. Do you see how John's giving us both sides? He says, You're not only have been born of God. But he's not just some distant father somewhere. You also know God. You've been in intimate relationship with him. And this has some practical bearing on who you are. So John says, hey, when you struggle to love, remember where you came from. Remember who you came from. I don't want to trivialize the moment, but I couldn't help but think this week as I was contemplating this text, the movie Rocky. Actually, any of the movies, Rocky. Rocky. They all have the same plot line. You have this aspiring fighter who shows some promise and some hope, and he gets distracted by all his fame and his fortune, and then he ends up getting beat up, and at every movie he has to remember who he was and where he came from. The sad music plays, the streets of Philadelphia beckon him to remember how his upbringing was so tough, and he just had to get back to his roots so that he could be the man that he needed to be. It's a similar storyline that happens in so much of our literature and movies because it's the way that we think. When we remember where we came from, when we get back to our roots, it has an impact upon who we are, what we do. For better or worse, and John says here it's going to happen for better, when you realize, when you remember that where you came from, where your roots are, are in the Heavenly Father who is the source and substance of love, this will have some type of impact upon your identity and your activity. The next time you find it hard to love one another, I would encourage you to do an identity check. Beloved, it is so easy to forget who you are, to forget where you came from. Hear me, hear me well. You are a child of God in relationship with God who is the source and substance of love if you're believing in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Something changed in you. You were different than you used to be. When the struggles come, or just in your day-to-day, do you see yourself more as a child of your physical father or your heavenly father? Do you give more credence to your last name Or to your name in Christ. So often it's easy for us to take on an alternate identity. We we say things like, I'm just not a loving person. I'm not really into people. I'm just not that outgoing. It's hard for me to show love. I'm just not gifted in that way. Every one of those statements are identity statements. Who told you you could say that? You are not that. Don't forget who you really are. When it comes to Christian love, it doesn't matter who your parents were or what the Myers-Briggs test told you on the internet or how other people tend to think of you. You are a son and daughter of God who is love. You are the kind of person who exercises love and care for other believers. You are kind, loving, gracious, and compassionate. You are the kind of man or woman who sacrifices greatly for the spiritual well-being of others. You are the kind of person who reconciles relationships, overlooks offenses, and pursues the best interests of others. This is who you are. If you have truly been born again, By trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. This isn't some moralistic pep talk. Hear me well. This isn't true of everyone in this room. This is only true of those who have been born again as evidenced by their faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. And if you have questions about that and you don't know if that's true of you, talk to the person beside you put a little question on the back of the comment card and we'll follow up with you. You need to know that because you will never be able to love other people in the way that God has prescribed until you become the person that God told you to be in Christ. So do you see how loving one another conveys our Father's nature? This motivates you to obey the command to love one another. But the text lists another motive. Loving one another not only conveys the Father's nature, but it also corresponds with the Father's sacrifice. We should keep loving one another because it corresponds with the Father's sacrifice. Verses 9 through 11 speak to this, and before we read it, I just want to give you an overview of what's going on. Here, John is going to describe in great detail, in two verses, he's going to emphasize the Father's sacrifice for us through the Son... And then notice the catch. He's going to switch it all up at verse 11 and he's going to move us to show love to one another in the same way. He wants our love to be consistent with or an outflow of the love that God has shown to us. So you've got to get God's love before you can get to the command. So here's how it's going to work. We're going to see this demonstration of God's love in verses 9 and 10 and then we'll see the implications of that in verse 11. And see if you can discern any pattern. First, we have this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how it was seen. This is how it was shown. This is how it was displayed. That God sent. Notice that God initiates. God sent his son. It's not as some critics of the Bible would try to tell us that God is, the the Father is this mean and wrathful God and he hates people and then Jesus is the kind and loving one and somehow he stepped in and kept the Father from exercising his wrath on us. No, listen, the Father, God the Father is the one who sent his son. It was his plan. He initiated and he sent, listen to this, his only son. So he not only initiated but he also sacrificed His greatest treasure. Notice only son, monogenes, one of a kind, unique, the one who had always come from him. It speaks of his pre-existence, by the way. For those of you who come from backgrounds that say that Jesus was created, you can't send a son if he's not already there. The son is preexistent. He was always with the father, always in this unique father-son relationship, all the way back in eternity past. And God sacrificed that son. He sent that son, the one who would always come from him to us. The reason why I emphasize that word only, or that phrase only son, or as in the King James, it says only begotten son, it's because... In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's translated in Genesis 22 2 that we read earlier today. Remember that story? We just read Abraham, Isaac, and he says, Go and take your son, your only son, Isaac. What a startling picture. Does that scene not speak to the extent of Abraham's willingness to obey? I mean, you, you read it and you think, What's going on here? Who in their right mind would ever willingly lay their son on the altar for anything? It isn't until the pages of the New Testament that we find out God the Father would. He would send His Son. He would show His love for us in that way. And He would would not only initiate and He would not only sacrifice, but He would do it for our eternal spiritual good. Notice that He says that He sent His Son into the world so that we might live through him. Remember the world in the book of 1 John has always had a negative connotation. The world is the human realm that had rebelled against God. And so God sent his son so that these rebels, those who would trust in Jesus, might live through him. He would do it for our eternal spiritual good. And let's not Get bogged down in the details. Get the pattern. God initiated. God sacrificed. And he did it for our eternal spiritual good. The same thing happens in verse 10. Do you see it? Look at the text. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Paul's there. Do you see the initiation of God again? God initiated. We did not kick off the love relationship. We didn't in any way earn his affection or win his praise. We didn't meet him halfway. We didn't even meet him part of the way. God's love for us has nothing, zero, zilch to do with our love for him. But God's love is that he loved us. He did it. He initiated He not only initiated, but he sacrificed. Look at the next part of verse 10. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sacrificed. He sent his son to die in our place. I know the word propitiation throws us in a tailspin every time we see it. But for those of you who have been here in recent weeks, we just talked about this back in 1 John 2, 2. Propitiation. It's something... That could be translated atoning sacrifice. It it spoke to the satisfaction of God's wrath for sin. To understand the word propitiation or to help anybody else understand it, you, you need to grasp at least two things theologically. One is God's wrath and his justice. Remember, we said that those didn't conflict in any way with his love. God's wrath is his passionate pursuit to punish sin and those who commit it because sin is morally reprehensible, averse to his character, and damaging to creation. Again, oncologists hate cancer. God hates sin. God is wrathful. He expresses anger over sin, and he does so justly because it's the right thing to do. But that's not all that propitiation tells us. It tells us that God is angry about our personal sin, but it also conveys his love and grace because it shows of his willingness to allow for a substitute. Now, in the Old Testament, propitiation frequently conveyed these myriad animal sacrifices. But in the New Testament, Jesus, the son, would be the final sacrifice. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Father would send the Son to satisfy the righteous wrath we deserved on account of our rebellion. Don't miss it. Hence, get it? He initiated. He sacrificed. And who did he do it for? He did it for us. He did it for our eternal spiritual good. In the words of verse 10, he did it for our sins is what the text says. He paid our death penalty. So again, he showed love and that he initiated, he sacrificed. This, friends, is agape love. It's still the same word. It's the only word for love that's used in the book of First John. This, friends, is why we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Dear church family, what you've got to get here is that God's love is so much deeper than ours. It is so much more superior. Can I give you a contrast? Typical human love, that which the righteous brothers would sing about, typically waits till something strikes its fancy. And yes, I said that. Strikes its fancy. You know what I mean by that human love responds to that which is pleasing or desirable. You hear these statements. I love her because she is so beautiful. I love him because he is so funny. I love her because she is so smart. I love him because he is so rich. Well, they don't say that, but they think that. (laughs) Human love is usually a response of love, but I love the way one commentator set this up. He says, agape love comes first. It creates value in its object whether there is any intrinsic value there or not. The sun shines on the earth not because the earth is the earth but because the sun is the sun. God loves me because he is he not because I am I. Let me repeat that. The sun shines on the earth not because the earth is the earth but because the sun is the sun. And God loves me because he is he, not because I am I. Thus, God initiated, God sacrificed, he did it for our eternal spiritual good. And with this clear picture of love in mind, I want you to trace the connection to the command in verse 11. Beloved, if God so in this way, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see the argument? There's an argument here. I want you to follow it. If God loved us in this way, it's a conditional statement assumed to be true. If God loved us by initiating and sacrificing for our eternal good, we are obliged to love each other in the same way. We are obliged to show love by initiating and sacrificing for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is our obligation ought. The word ought. You ought to do this. This is typically the language of payback, is it not? We know the word ought very well this time of year because there's all these questions that go on between husbands and wives and singles. It's, somebody got me a gift. What ought I to do in return? It's this social contract. If somebody bought me something, I wonder if I should get them something back. You feel that way, right? When the person out of the blue at the workplace buys you something or gives you a $15 gift card, you're immediately thinking, okay, now I owe that person $15 in some way, shape, or form. Thank you. My brother and I actually had a funny discussion about this last year. We were just lamenting. We were like, look, if we're just always trying to break even, let's just stop giving and keep our money. You know, like like it's just a real hassle. We could save each other a lot of time. That would be the loving thing to do. My wife would have none of that. But me and Joshua, we're on the same page. But something's interesting here. Something fascinating happens in this text. It's the language of obligation. God is telling us here. He says, feel the obligation, but don't pay it back. Pay it forward. You would think that the text says, since God so loved us, we also ought to love him. That's what you would think. But it says, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love, who? One another. In light of the way that God has loved you, pay it forward. In light of the way God has loved you, Live with a fundamental commitment to look for ways to initiate and sacrifice for the eternal good of others. Practically, let me break this down for you in three ways. First, don't wait for ways to show love. Initiate. If you're going to show God's love, you don't wait for ways to show love. You initiate. Spurgeon once pointed out, and I'm going to just totally rob his illustrations because he's got the best and I won't use his old English to do it. He says, social etiquette typically requires for the offender to seek forgiveness from the offended. So if on the way out, I happen to step on your foot because I'm not paying attention where I'm going, causing you great pain. Or it would be the obligation of me as the offender, at least in our culture, like, all right, I messed up your day, therefore I need to reach out to you and make it right. That's the way things typically work. And yet here, God didn't wait for rebellious humanity to send word to his throne for terms of reconciliation. God himself commenced negotiations. That is initiations, friend. That is when you... Go on the attack. You are not being passive, but active. You are actively looking for ways to show God's love to others. You look for opportunities to love. You lean into them. I would encourage you to ask yourself, are there any ways in which I am being passive in my love for other believers when I should be active and taking initiative? Friends, this not only applies to repairing broken relationships, but it also applies to the building of non-existent ones. There may be people that you haven't shown any love to yet because you haven't even taken the time to get to know them. Initiate. Be active, not passive with your love for other believers. Secondly, don't just do it when it's convenient or when you have abundance, but sacrifice. Don't just do it when it's convenient or when you have abundance, sacrifice. So God initiated, we initiate. God sacrificed, we sacrificed. He says, love each other in this way. God sacrificed his son for you, and his only expectation is that you sacrifice yourself for the good of others. Is your love for other believers a matter of surplus or sacrifice? Is it something that you do when it's convenient or when it's costly? Look, let's just be really honest for a moment. I, I, I can't foresee a scenario in which someone in this room will be physically dying or sending their son to die for anyone else, all right? So you can breathe easy. But at the same time, you should regularly be sacrificing that which is precious to you for the good of other people. Look, sometime this week, let me encourage you to do this. Maybe take an inventory of your time, your treasure, and your talents. Your time, your treasure, your talents. And ask, are each of these regularly being sacrificed for the eternal good of others? Think about it. Am I using my time on a regular basis to serve and love other believers? Am I using my treasure on a regular basis to serve and love other believers? Am I using my talents, the gifts that God has given me, to regularly serve other believers? He says, look. I don't know how much you're going to sacrifice, but you will sacrifice. It will be a regular feature of your life. God loved you in this way. You love others in that way. And then finally, don't just try to make others physically or emotionally comfortable. Target eternal spiritual good. Don't just try to make others physically or emotionally comfortable. Target eternal spiritual good. What did God do for us? He didn't just make us a little more comfortable. He didn't make our lives just a little more convenient. He met our greatest spiritual need. And so also believers should be concerned about the greatest spiritual needs of other believers. We do everything within our power to help them become more like Jesus or to even know Jesus in the first place. This means that we love practically. We we do unto others as you would have them do unto you. you. You do kind things. Why? So that you can have a platform to help them spiritually. You listen carefully. You get to know them and you, you try to find out and listen. In what ways could I help them and pray for them as they seek to become more like Jesus? We love practically. We listen carefully and we speak faithfully. We study and share the scriptures. We try to bring spiritual truth to bear on other people's life. Friends, biblical love for other believers is more than just a Hallmark card at Christmas time. That may be the start, but it moves beyond that, to enter that person's world, to know what their truest needs are. Someone, uh, one of our church members sent me an email this week and they said, Justin, I appreciate all of the emphasis that you've put on practical expressions of love uh, in the, the preaching series. He says, but I, I just thought it'd be good that if every once in a while you'd mention, you know, the, the, the ultimate end of that. You know, I thought, He's right. <laughs> Whereas this isn't just you know us patting each other on the back and sending encouraging texts. It, it's so that the greatest eternal need within our hearts and souls would be met. Look, we live in a culture we live in Naples, Florida. We live in a culture in which th- there's not that much desperate physical need among us. I know it is out there. It's just not in our face. But let me tell you what's glaring: people's lack of Christ-likeness, people's need for the gospel. And John says, if you're going to show love in the way that God showed love to you, you will sacrifice, you will initiate, and you will do so targeting the spiritual good of other people. So we've been talking about motives to keep loving one another. We love because it conveys the Father's nature. We love because it corresponds with the Father's sacrifice. And finally, we should keep loving one another because it completes the Father's love. We should keep loving one another because it completes the Father's love. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, now John is going to argue something amazing here. That loving one another proves or shows the existence of the invisible God. The one who lives in us is, is made visible as we love one another. Now, historically speaking, John is probably refuting the false teachers of the day. As you just look through the annals of history around this time in Ephesus where John was writing, there was popular movements in which people claimed to have unique access to God. They said that they had a special knowledge of him, a special awareness of him that had just descended from on high, and so they loved to boast of their visions of God. We kind of have similar things today if you watch TV long enough. But John says, all right, let's be theologically clear and accurate. No one has seen God at any time. He says that in John 1.18. God is a spirit, John 4.24. In fact, the Old Testament records for us that if anyone ever did see the unmediated presence of God, they would have died. Remember the, the story where Moses actually had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock? And being exposed to God, that was as close as he could get. It would consume us. And so the question is, how then does God make himself known? If for him to fully show himself would incinerate everybody in the room, how does he show himself? John 1, with which these readers would have been familiar, John 1 answers that question in this way. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, He has made Him known. That's the answer in John chapter 1 when Jesus is present on the earth. Jesus showed what God was like to people. If he wouldn't have, the Father's character would have remained obscure. The coming of Christ showed the invisible God, even though the divine nature could not have been seen by physical eyes. But something changes in 1 John. We've got John 1, but now, forget that for a moment, think of 1 John. How does he answer the question in 1 John? Well, Jesus isn't physically around anymore. So how will anybody ever see God, and how will they ever know what he's like? You look to the enacted love of his people for one another. That is where God shows himself now. That is mind-blowing, my friends. If Jesus was supposed to be the one who accurately pictured God's love while he was walking on this planet, now the means is you and me showing love to one another? In my human naivete, it seems like a bad plan. But that is the plan that he gave. And I would never question the wisdom and the goodness of God. This is why John adds, if we love one another, God abides in us. Just as Jesus made God real and visible to the first century Jews in Palestine, so also love for one another makes God real and visible to the world. It shows that God lives in us, that he is at home in us. And if we love one another, his love, this is fascinating, is perfected in us. You're thinking, what in the world? How could God's love be perfected? Like it was messed up in some way, and then we fix it. Well, the word perfected in the New Testament means to complete something, to bring it to its intended end, to finish, to accomplish. The the love of God is brought to fruition in us. It is brought to its intended purpose when we love one another. And this perfected love Reveals God's love to the world. I'll I'll say this this way. Love for one another is the culmination. It is the finishing point of the love planned in eternity past, provided in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and empowered by the Spirit at regeneration. It doesn't reach its final destination until it goes through us to others. I, I would liken it this way. Love for other believers is like the ribbon-cutting ceremony at some local hospital. There was a lot that went on in cost and construction before any wealthy socialite ever took those golden scissors and cut the red ribbon. And yet it symbolized the official end, the completion of the project. Christian love is the proof of purchase, it's the completed transaction, it's like the baby in the mother's arms, the fruition of the pregnancy, it's finally like, it's the end, it's it's where it was all headed in the first place. The love of the invisible God, who is love, has reached its intended destination in this human world as people are loving one another. I like to think of it this way, God poured his love into you, intending for you to be a channel, not a reservoir. A reservoir. A river, not a pond. His love in you reaches its intended end when it flows through you to other believers. This week, Tanya on Tuesday uh, decided to make some little mini pies uh, and deliver them to some people in our church uh, and made an additional one for one of our neighbors that we've been trying to get to know for a while. Um, Actually, Bruce and Joy Komarowski babysat our house on Halloween night so that we could take our kids trick-or-treating. Please don't write me an angry letter about that. (laughs) So they could represent us in the community. And anyway, they got to know these neighbors and gave us their information and said, hey, you need to follow up with them. So a lot of work had gone into this uh, ministry endeavor on Tuesday. Um, Well, not much work for me. (laughs) I did pay for it, if that helps. But Tanya did all the baking. Um, The kids rode around with her. And anyway, it got to the end of the day, and it was time to go take the final pie uh, over to the neighbor so that we could actually, you know, make that connection personally with them. And um, I I think Tanya was just exhausted or something, but somehow it ended up being me and the five children um, walking down the street trying to find this neighbor in the dark. And we went to the wrong house, And then the lady says, you need to be over at this house. And she actually pointed us to the wrong house. Anyway, it was a long story. But after we finally navigated our way to this person's front door, something interesting happened. Uh, The kids, in a rather cute and annoying way, started fighting over who would be the one to give the pie to the neighbor. I appreciated the, the desire to express the love practically. I did not appreciate the timing because the lady is literally walking to the door as the kids are fighting over a pie, not for themselves, (laughs) but to give to the neighbor. Why is it that they wanted to do that? Because that was the final leg. That was the culmination of the gift. There had been much planning and preparation, but now the presentation, that's the honor. They were going to be the connecting point for our love for these neighbors. They wanted that opportunity. And so also, in light of all the planning and all the preparation of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, I mean, back to eternity past, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and what Jesus accomplished and how he's been working through his church ever since then, guess what? His love isn't done when it reaches you. It's when it goes through you to other people. You get to be the one to deliver the pie, if you will. That's awesome. That's awesome. He does all the work, he does all the sacrifice, he does all the planning, and you get to present it. I think that will move you to love. You are making the love of God visible. You finish the deal. Listen to me. In every expression of care for another believer, you made the love of the invisible God visible. In every edifying word, you made His love visible. In every intentional spiritual investment in another believer, you made God's invisible love visible. In every committed prayer, in every thoughtful gift, you made it visible. You delivered the pie. You finished the deal. You completed the love of the Father. That's an honor. Love from the invisible God reaches its final destination when you obey the command to love one another. So we love one another even when it's hard because it completes the Father's love. Friends, both science and experience tell us that we cannot always count on that love and feeling. The scientific research is all over the map. Some behavioral psychologists say that infatuation, as we typically define it, can last anywhere from two days to three years, uninterrupted. I don't know much about the science. I do know about the experience, and I would agree with John and Noel Piper in their book on marriage, where they talk about love and feelings in the foreword of the book, where they say that love, that loving feeling, if you will, is like a pendulum. Sometimes it's over here at the heights of ecstasy. And sometimes it's over here at the heights of endurance. But most of the time it's somewhere in between. This isn't just true of marriage relationships. It's true of the way that we feel about our children. It's true of our relationships in the church. We can't always count on the feelings. But we can be encouraged today because those who are in Christ, their love will Will last. The pendulum may swing, but it will never fall off. Why? Because of what John says. Whoever is born of God will love his brother or sister in Christ. Why? Because of what Paul says. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And indeed it does. It it will. It will endure. That is The the theoretical, practical, I mean, positional truth of love. But, friends, let's be very practical for a moment. That is the ideal. But what about the reality? How does it work itself out? Quick answer, faith-fueled obedience. Faith-fueled obedience. The text makes clear that biblical love not only will persevere, but it should persevere. In other words, biblical love isn't just a reality, it's also a responsibility. As believers, we must obey the command to love one another, sustained by the reality that we are the children of God who is love. We obey the command to love, moved by the sacrifice that he made for us, wanting to convey the same thing to others. And we obey the command to love, excited by the opportunity to complete, to fulfill his love in others. Listen, if love is hard for you today, I would encourage you to apply these realities to whatever situation you're dealing with and obey again this week. The feeling may or may not follow. But through faith you can and will prevail. Maybe, just maybe, you're in here this week and love for other believers for you is something of an uphill battle. It it could be that you feel like you're the one being left out. It could be you're the one that's been offended or hurt. It could be that you're the person who's new and unknown. It could be you're the person that's quiet and shy and not outgoing. Maybe love is uphill for you because you're the person with little to offer. Or maybe too much to offer. You've got too much going on. You don't know if you have time to love. Maybe you're the person who's just grown tired of initiating. Love may be hard, but it is not impossible. If if that is your struggle today... Let me give you two final admonitions in this order. First, beloved, believe. Believe. Believe that God has given you His loving nature, that He has demonstrated His sacrificial love to you, that He has extended to you the opportunity to complete His love. Ways to practically live this out, to ingrain this in your mind, is to pray about it, to meditate on it, to apply it. There's a second step. Beloved, obey. Obey. Don't don't get caught up in just the thoughts, but get it into action. Demonstrate love this week. Do it specifically. Do it practically. Do it habitually if you're already doing it. Think through the who, the how, but let us keep loving one another. Let's now pray for the grace to believe and behave in accordance with with God's love for us. And then Phil will come and lead us in a closing song of praise for our God who is love. Father, there is much truth here, real concrete truth about who you are, about who you made us, about how you've loved us, about how you work. And for some it may be news, for some it may be heavy, for some our minds are tired and yet, I pray that your heart would be our heart, and that or these truths would become a part of the, the fabric of our lives, work into action even this week. I pray your spirit would move among these members, not just with thoughts of you, but actions for you. As we've heard for the third time in two months the admonition to love one another pray that we would continue to obey. Help us now. Enable us by your Spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.